you get an outline? Oh, okay. kind of bright just just a little yeah a little bit too bright all right everybody got an outline How's everyone? Good. You brain dead yet? No, I am. Yeah, two, you know, two o'clock usually I get a little brain dead. Okay, good to have you here. Uh, I don't particularly care for. I'm in. This, I'm the pastor here at this church. I have to preach here on Sunday, but on workshops I like to be in a class where it's a little bit more intimate. I was going to have you participate a little bit, but I guess I can't do what I wanted you to do now. So, um, so we'll. Uh, I have to uh, do it a little bit differently. But let's take a minute and pray, shall we? Father, we pause and we thank you. I thank you for uh, bringing Heath here uh, with the uh, knowledge of the scriptures you have given him, Lord, and able to really uh, understand and cut to the chase in in many ways of what's uh, taking place uh, not only in our world and Christendom and um, helping us to Uh, see things clearly. And I pray for all the workshops that are taking place now as well, Lord, that you would use them for your honor and glory. Help me as well to be able to communicate this vital passage of Scripture uh, to those who are here that want to grasp this and be able to use its life-transforming truths uh, in the lives of themselves as well as those they may counsel. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, uh, this is uh, uh, on Romans chapter 6, what I'm titling a foundation of transformed living. I don't have a PowerPoint or anything like that there, but I have a pretty extensive outline for you. And um, as we go along, and there's no fill-in-the-blanks or anything. I don't know, for some reason, I'm not too crazy about the the fill-in-the-blank stuff. I'm trying to fill in the blank, and as I'm writing, the guy's talking real fast, and then you're not getting what he says. So, but I will. I hope it's not too cumbersome. I'm going to tell you, okay, number one here, uh, Roman number one, two, the next bullet or whatever, just to make sure uh, you're with me in that. Uh, But uh, Romans chapter 6 is what I call a liberating truth. This is a liberating truth. And um, this is how we are set free from sinful patterns of thinking and sinful patterns of behavior. Let's read, if we would, the first 14 verses. I'm going to cover the first 14 verses here. Everyone there? Um, The Apostle Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death, in a death like this, we shall certainly, certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. For if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Now that's a pretty heavy theological passage of scripture, isn't it? Remember early on, someone said, hey, memorize Romans chapter 6. I didn't even, and I knew it was important, but I didn't know how really important it was until <laughs> some years later. And I memorized Romans chapter 6, at least the first 14, I think it was the first 14 verses and so on. But my memory spans down to five seconds now, and I can't remember it anymore. But uh, Romans chapter 6, as it relates to our personal struggle against sin, cannot be overestimated. You can't overestimate this. Trying to resist our sinful habits, trying to resist our uh, sinful tendencies without trying to apply the truth or grasping the truth of Romans chapter 6 is kind of like trying to stop a running bull with your bare hands. And many Christians have uh, settled for a, a mediocre Christian life, and they settle for a mediocre Christian life because they've tried to live the Christian life in their own power. They've tried to to, to resist that, that force of sin, that force of indwelling sin by just sheer willpower. And they've repaid, re, uh, they failed repeatedly, and what they do is that they just kind of resign themselves to a life of mediocrity. And we all know a lot of Christians like this, don't, don't we? Now, as we move through this particular chapter, I want you to, what I want you to do is um, apply it to your specific struggle in your life. And whatever that struggle may be, I want you to know this. There's no habit, there's no tendency that's beyond the reach that's of what's being addressed in Romans chapter 6. That's a pretty big statement, isn't it? But to say any less would be kind of heretical, wouldn't it? You see, we're, this whole conference is on what? The sufficiency of Scripture. And what we're looking at here in Romans 6 is really the sufficiency of Christ, isn't it? He's all sufficient. A believer can have victory. We can have victory uh, over habits and patterns of thinking uh, that are destructive to our own life. And as a counselor, uh, you're going to need to have a very good grasp of Romans chapter 6. You're going to need to teach it. It's liberating truth to almost every constant case. At least I find myself that I have to do that. Nine out of ten counseling cases, i got to go to Romans chapter 6. Now, my wife and I usually uh, mainly deal in the church here. 
uh, in, uh, with marriage counseling. We have nine certified counselors, and one is very close. We'll have ten, ten uh, in another month or so. But uh, we mainly do marriage counseling. And if, how many have done marriage counseling? Difficult, isn't it? You've got two people there, and it's very difficult. Uh, uh, it's, it's the most, it, uh, by far, uh, uh, there's more marriage counseling than any other one really put together. And it's very uh, complex because you have two people that you're trying to deal with uh, to make one, which isn't an easy thing to do. But uh, I, we have to uh, go over this with them, and I go over this with them generally sometime in the second session, and if they don't understand it, the, even the third session. And I find with Romans chapter 6, I, I've come to the kind of the conclusion, I, maybe this is my opinion, okay? So don't, don't take this as, as Bible. But um, it seems to me when they don't get it, I question their salvation. I really do. I wonder if they're truly saved. Romans chapter 6 is something you, you grasp. Uh, you, you, it's more, better caught than taught, I guess you can say. It's better caught than taught. And as liberating truths of this chapter, it hinges on three key words here. I have them circled in my Bible. It's the word know in verse 3. In the ESV I use, it's the word consider in verse 11. If you have a, uh, I think a New King James says reckon, and um, I don't know what does NIV say for consider. Verse 11. Who has an NIV here? Anybody? No one? All right. does it? What is it? It's different. Count, count, yeah, okay. Uh, and then present is in verse 13. No one presented the same, I think, in just about all the translations. I have them circled in my Bible. As a matter of fact, what I use, I usually use this. I have this Bible mainly for counseling. You know, I preach out of a different one, but I use this one mainly for counseling. It kind of gives a margin on the ends of it, and it's uh, verse justified, where I even have spaces in between because instead of paragraph form, I could write little notations in it, and I have Romans 6, all little notes in Romans chapter 6. That helps me as I can uh, show this uh, to uh, people that are counseling so they can, that are going through a struggle in their life. And the first thing we need to know, the first key word, as I said, is know. And Roman numeral number one in your outline is know your position in Christ. You need to know your, consider, uh, your position in Christ. The, the, consider, let, let's uh, consider that first word, know. Okay, between uh, verses 3 through 9, the Apostle Paul, he repeatedly uses this word no. In verse 3, he says, do you not know? Then in verse 6, he adds, we know. And again, in verse 9, he says, we know. So I think he wants us to know something, right? He wants us to know something very important. So number 2 says, so what does he want us to know? Well, it's this. If you want victory over sin, you must know your position in Christ. If you want victory over sin, you must know your position in Christ. That that first bullet says after number two. Ignorance of who you are in Christ, it's a major hindering uh, uh, factor in the life of victory. It's a major hindering factor in the life of victory. If Satan can keep you ignorant of this truth, then he can keep you spiritually weak. Number three says, God wants you to know a tremendous spiritual truth. Let's look at this passage again. Let's take a look as as it kind of unfolds for us. In verse 1 and 2, it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we 
who died to, st- to sin still live in it. In other words, what he's saying there, if you look at that first bullet, when you placed saving faith in Christ, a death sentence was declared on your sin nature. Its power has been broken in your life. Now, that's what he means when he says, you have died to sin. Or later when he says, we have been set free from sin. Now, does that mean that we're going to be free from temptation? No, we'll always be tempted, right? Even Jesus was tempted, wasn't he? Tempted in the wilderness uh, for those 40 days by, uh, by the devil. You'll still be tempted, but it, what it does mean is that the sinful nature, our sin nature no longer needs to, to dominate us. That's the point. It no, leads, no longer needs to dominate our life. In fact, that's, that's exactly the point that the Apostle Paul is getting to, and you see this in verse 14, where he's building up to, to verse 14, and where, where he gives the conclusion. He says, look at it again, for sin will have no dominion over you. This is, this is the point he's trying to get to. Your second bullet says, now follow the apostle's thinking. Follow his thinking. Look at what he goes on to say in verses 3 and 4. First he's saying, a death sentence was pronounced upon your sin nature. He broke the power of sin in your life. Verse 3 and 4 goes on to say, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is called identification. Look at that, first, uh, uh, that's, that second bullet, what it states there. This is called identification or, or union. Uh, the identification is a theological term. It's, it's our union with Christ. You have a whole new identity, and, and that's based upon your union with Christ. Okay, let me put this in simple terms. What happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago happened to you at the moment of your conversion. That's what this is saying in, in simple terms. When Jesus died for sin, you died to sin. When Jesus was buried, your sin was buried with him. Isn't that a beautiful thing to think about? Your sin was buried with him. When Jesus rose from the dead, you rose to newness of life. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Wonderful truth. You rose from the dead to a new life in Christ. When you place saving faith in Christ, God applied to you what happened to Christ. And this is called identification. Number four, I spelled it all out for you there because I think it's critical. It says, your new spiritual position or union with Christ. Through faith, you identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your identity changed when you came to Christ. His death for sin became your death to sin. His burial became your burial. His resurrection to life became your resurrection to a new life. You have a whole new identity. You are no longer in Adam. You are now in Christ. This is your new spiritual position or union in Christ. 
So Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, and when Paul uses this, and kind of what throws off some people, because it is a very theological chapter, and what throws off some people here is the, uh, he expresses a believer's uh, union with Christ in terms of baptism. You see that? And when we think of baptism, what's the first thing that goes in our minds? What's, what do we think? Wet, right? Wet. We never think dry, do we? Do you think there's a dry baptism? How many think there's a dry one, too? Anybody? There's a dry baptism. This is the dry one. <laughs> okay, this is the dry one here. This is referring to a spiritual baptism. This isn't referring to water. No amount of water is going to affect the, the spiritual union that this is talking about here. However, in water baptism, it does symbolize what takes place. It does symbolize what takes place. The act of water baptism symbolizes what takes place in this spiritual baptism, this dry baptism. When a, when a believer is baptized in water, and of course, uh, uh, here we, our baptism is back there, we immerse here. And um, when a believer is baptized, what he's doing is <clears throat> symbolically identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're in, they're in the, the water, the tub there, the baptism, and then they, they're there. They, they usually share a testimony of what took place in their life some time back. And then we baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's like portraying they go back into the water, they're buried in the water, and then they come back up. And the idea is the old you died, okay, sometime back when you came to faith in Christ, and the new you is raised to a newness of life. And um, so, so literally, uh, baptism, the word literally means immerse. That's what it means, to immerse. But there's also a figurative sense to it, and the figurative sense of baptism is to identify with. And here it's used in, in, in the figurative sense, uh, to identify with. Number five, now here's the point, do not miss it. You will not enter into a life of victory if you only see the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus as a means of delivering you from the penalty of sin, okay, which is hell. To live a life of victory, you also need to see yourself as having died with Christ, that is, you die to your sin nature, and as having been raised to newness of life. Listen, God's not simply content to forgive us of our sins. He's not simply content to just forgive us of our sins. He wants to forgive us of our sins when we place faith in Jesus Christ. But he also wants to transform our lives, doesn't he? It's a transformation process that takes place at conversion. It's a lifelong process, isn't it? And unfortunately, too many Christians give little thought to their Christian walk. I can't, uh, I don't know how many times through the years I've been uh, full-time ministry since 1982. Was that 32 years now? And uh, how many people here and there come up to me, well, I'm, I'm saved, isn't that enough? Whenever they start feeling challenged in their life to grow, serve, do something, well, I'm saved, isn't that enough? You know, they got their what, they, uh, fire assurance or uh, a type of a thing where they, uh, and so on, but... Uh, Verse 4 states, we too might walk in newness of life. And just as Tim was sharing over here, this life, this is, this is new in character, isn't it? 
It's a life of new and quality. This is a, you're a different person than you were before Christ. Amen? And therefore, don't just claim forgiveness in Christ based upon his death for your sins. You need to also claim the resurrection of Christ for a life of victory and personal transformation. Most Christians understand justification. Few Christians understand sanctification and how you grow in the Christian life. So it all goes back always to the, uh, our justification, be it forgiven. It all goes back to the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, our initial salvation, placing faith in that for, the, for, the, for, the justification, uh, uh, for our justification before God. But we also need to go back to the death, burial, and resurrection for that, our identification, our union with Christ and what that means for us. Are you catching this? You see this? God doesn't want to merely forgive you. He also wants to transform your life into the likeness of Christ. And as we read on the, the next few verses, I think we're going to see that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. Look what he says in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. See, there's that union. United, united. Now, what's he saying here? Well, he's saying that if you've experienced the benefits of Christ's death, namely justification then you're also entitled to experience the benefits of his resurrection, which is namely sanctification, growth in Christ-likeness, a new type of life. In other words, what he's saying here is that you now have the potential in Christ to live a new godly life. Sin's power has been broken in your life. And verse 6 is a mouthful. This is, this is the verse of all verses almost there. Verse 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, and that's the rule of sin, the idea there, the rule of sin, or that, that dominating factor of sin in our lives, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's a Cadillac verse, isn't it? He speaks about our old self in verse 6. That is, who's the old self? Who's the old self he's talking about? See, that's why I wish we were in a smaller room here. In Adam, right? Who we were in Adam when we were fallen in Adam. He says our old self, who we were in Adam... That old lifestyle, and that old lifestyle was dominated by our fallen nature, right? By, by the sin nature. Its power has been broken in our lives, he says. It's been broken. And, and this, it's clearly stated in verse 6. Follow his thinking. Keep, look, look what he says in verse 6. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Did you ever try tempting a dead body? You think anything would happen? Nothing would happen, would it? You, couldn't, you can't tempt a dead body. You can get uh, some guy uh, uh, that uh, had a dead body. Uh, uh, maybe a guy was caught up into pornography all his life, you know. 
got caught up in, uh, in, in pornographic stuff, and he dies, and there's his body there, and you could put a naked woman in front of him, and it isn't going to bother him at all, right? Of course not, no. That's the idea here. That's the believer's position in Christ. You have a new status, and that new status just completely alters your relationship to sin. Let me give you uh, number six. Let me give you a a contrast and an illustration for clarity. Contrast and an illustration for charity. Uh, This is supposed to be done a quarter after, right? Quarter after three, am I correct? I think so. Yeah, okay. Here's a contrast. Before your, your conversion, as I said, you identified with Adam. You identified with Adam. Romans 5.12 says we all died in Adam. And moreover, because of your identification with Adam, you're like the rest of fallen mankind, right? We're all like the rest of fallen humanity. We were in bondage to sin, to the rule of sin in our life, right? And we were easily influenced by the power of Satan, weren't we? But now, through faith, you've identified with Christ. You're no longer an Adam. He broke the power of sin in your life, and you no longer need to give in to the pull of of the sin nature. But if you don't grasp this truth of your new position in Christ, you're not going to live a life of victory. Satan is a master deceiver, isn't he? He's a master deceiver. And he'll try to get you to think, I cannot kick this bad habit. I just can't get rid of this bad habit. I just can't overcome this temptation. But that's a lie, isn't it? What's Satan's greatest, what's Satan's greatest weapon against us? What is it? What's his greatest weapon? What is it? Lies. He's a liar and the father of it, right, Jesus said. That's his greatest weapon. He lies. What's the greatest defense against them? Truth. Right? The truth. Don't believe the lie. You're no longer an Adam. You're now in Christ. You have a whole new identity. Jesus Christ broke Satan's power over you. It's just so crucial that we think in terms of our new identity, isn't it? You see why I say this is better caught than taught? And that's why when someone doesn't get this, when I share this, and sometimes that one couple we went... Three sessions. They were a new couple coming to our church, and they were a mess. They were wet in their marriage, this close to divorce, and uh, claimed to be saved. For, we went over their salvation, the whole first session. They just insisted that they were saved. Didn't live very much like it. The only rudiment they had is that they actually came to church, and uh, now when we tried to bring them to understand. Uh, what has taken place in their life, how they can be overcomers. They weren't getting it. Three full sessions, probably an hour and a half each time, they weren't getting it. 
And I went back to salvation again with them because I just don't think something's wrong. I think if you have the Spirit of God in you, this should excite you, shouldn't it? Let me give you an illustration. The old nature is kind of like a captain of a, 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 a cruel captain, captain of a ship. And that captain of a ship, he was just screaming out his orders to the, to the crew. And they were far out at sea, just weeks away from land at sea. And this captain, he was just evil through and through. And he got so bad that he went mad and he had to be replaced by the first mate. So the old captain, although he's still on the ship, he no longer had any legitimate authority any longer. He no longer had to be obeyed by the crew there. It was the new captain now, the first mate, considered the new captain. Now he was the one, he's the voice that they were to obey. And yet that old captain kept screaming out orders and the crew found themselves jumping at what that old captain was saying all the time. Jumping to the old captain as he just shouted out his orders to them. And what the crew had to remember is what? The old captain no longer needed to be obeyed. He had no longer had any power and authority over them. He's been stripped of, stripped of all his authority. And they had to come to that realization and believe that, right? And this is how it is with us. Our old tendencies of the sinful nature, they're going to keep shouting out their orders, aren't they? But it's been stripped of all authority. We can still obey it if we want to, but we no longer need to. Why not? Because Jesus Christ did what? He broke sin's power in our lives. It's a grand truth, isn't it? That's the first thing we need to know. We, it's, uh, we need to know. Know your position in Christ. Who you are in Christ. Your identity, your union with Christ. And what that means. How it radically altered your relationship to sin. And the second key word is consider. Roman numeral 2. Consider this to be true. Consider this to be true. Look at what it, goes, look at what it says in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, you want me to tell you what he's saying here in in simple terms? You want this in real simple terms? Real simple? Yeah? Believe it! That's what he's saying. Believe it! Believe what God says about who you are in Christ. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Look, until you accept the truth, the biblical truth, the biblical fact that Christ has broken the power of sin over your life, you cannot live a life of victory. You know why? Because you don't believe it. That's why. Because in your heart, you really don't believe it. I remember watching this on TV. I was a young man. It was in 1972. 
was an incredible thing that happened on the uh, island of Guam. And um, a World War II Japanese soldier came out of the jungle that he hid in for 27 years. I couldn't remember, I'm, I'm looking at it. He had this look on his face like he was totally embarrassed. 27 years. I just never forgot that. 1972. The war was over in 1945. 27 years elapsed when he got news the war was over. Now, why was he hiding in that jungle for 27 years? I'll tell you why. Because in 1945, when news came out that the war had ended, you know what? He refused to believe it. He just couldn't believe that Japan would surrender to the United States of America. He couldn't believe it. So he hid in that jungle for 27 years. Now let me ask you a question. During those 27 years, was he free? Was he free? No? Technically speaking, any time between 1945 and 1972, he was free to walk out of that jungle, wasn't he? Technically speaking. However, because he didn't want to believe that the war was over, he lived in a self-imposed bondage in that jungle for 27 years. Was he free? Technically, yes. But in reality, no. Why? Because he chose to live in bondage, even though the war was over. And it's the same way with many Christians. Too many Christians are living in the jungle of sin, aren't they? Even though Jesus Christ has defeated the power of sin in their lives. They've been set free from sin's domain, but they refuse to believe it. So they go on living in this self-imposed bondage to sinful habits, sinful attitudes, sinful behaviors destructive thinking patterns, and so on. Now, number two, let me give you a warning, a, war- a little warning here, precaution about feelings, right about this time, because at about this point, uh, it's probably a timely thing to for- forewarn you of. And I, use, I, I like to forewarn, uh, caution the consulees as well, because when you see them coming, th- this... This giving them hope when their eyes are being opened to this glorious truth of our identity in Jesus Christ. I want to warn them because in, in, 20, in 48 hours when they leave my office, the devil is going to be there good and strong, right? In their lives. I want to give them a little bit of a warning. Sinful impulses are going to arise in their heart. And you're going to feel as though you have to obey them. And I put my fingers up, feel, with quotations or marks around it, okay? But it's right there, it's right at that point that you're going to have to take it by faith. The facts of Romans chapter 6 are true no matter how you feel. Amen? And many Christians fail to make decisions about what they'll do or what they'll not do by how they feel at that particular moment, right? Most everyone is very feeling-oriented, right? 
They don't consider a thing to be true, as it says in verse 11, consider it to be true or reckon it to be true or count it to be true. They don't consider something to be true when God says it's actually true. Instead, they consider a thing to, to be true only if it feels to them to be true at that given moment. Right? Isn't that how it usually works? And the result of that kind of living is what? It's instability, right? Or what we can call the yo-yo Christian, right? Up one day, down the next. Up one day, down the next. Now, number three. How does, this, how does verse 11 work in everyday life? How does it work in everyday life? Well, two bullets there. Imagine yourself at a point of temptation. And deep within you, there's the struggle. Here's the struggle that's going on. And you feel compelled that you're going to have to make a sinful choice again. And it's right there that you have to exercise your faith and say, I'm dead to that. You need to believe in your heart. I'm dead to that. In Christ, I can now choose not to continue in that sin. You do not have to live like that or do that anymore. And it doesn't matter whether or not you feel dead to it or not. If you'll exercise your faith at that point of the temptation, you'll experience victory. You need to believe in your heart. You've got to say to your I'm dead to that. I don't have to live that way in that sin any longer. I don't have to give in to that temptation any longer. Christ set me free from that. Listen, for life change to take place in your life, you're going to have to apply the power of your identification in Christ at that specific point of temptation. The, the third bullet says, your identity in Christ must shape the way you think about yourself and the things you face in life. Look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. In other words... You now have a choice not to obey your old sinful desires and tendencies. See, sin no longer uh, is no longer your master as it was once before your faith in Jesus Christ. So for a believer to fully live out his new life in Christ, what does he have to do? He has to believe that he is not what he used to be. Consider this to be true, Paul says. And Satan doesn't want us to believe this, does he? He wants us to be blinded to this truth. He wants us to think we cannot change long-standing sinful habits and patterns in our life. Isn't that true? However, the command of verse 12 applies, uh, implies that it is possible, isn't it? It implies it is possible. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You're now called to make a choice. In other words, sin ought to have a, 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 um, less of a hold on us as we grow into faith, right? That's the point. 
I like what Wayne Grudem writes about this in his uh, theology book. He says, um, it's on page four in your outline. In practical terms, this means that we must affirm two things to be true. On the one hand, we will never be able to say, I am completely free from sin, because our sanctification will never be completed on this side of heaven. But on the other hand, a Christian should never say, for example, this sin has defeated me. I give up. I've had a bad temper for 37 years, and I'll have one until the day I die. And people are just going to have to put up with me the way I am. To say this is to say that sin has gained dominion. It is to allow sin to reign in our bodies. So we see no, consider, and the third key word is present. Roman numeral three, present yourself as as an instrument for righteousness. Knowing the truth and believing the truth is going to lead, lead to what? Doing the truth. Look at verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from dead, from, from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And this is the, what we have here in this exhortation of verse, uh, of verse 13. It's actually the, the practical working of the sanctification process. And notice, we're active in it, aren't we? We're to be active in it. It's not the uh, let go and let God. That's only half the truth. There's a, we're called to do something here. You, you're free now to do something. You're free to be active in your sanctification. You you have a role to play. We can't gain victory over temptation if we violate this principle, the principle of verse 13. That first bullet says we are to transition from presenting ourselves to sin as instruments for unrighteousness to presenting ourselves to God for the purpose of promoting and growing in righteousness. And what we're talking about here now, this is growth in Christ-likeness. This is what we're talking about now. This is growth in Christ-likeness, growth in, in Christian maturity, from to. And this is the type of uh, change that's to characterize uh, our lives for the rest of our lives, right? From righteousness, from unrighteousness, I mean to righteousness. From unrighteousness to righteousness. Look at what it says there in verse 19. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members, this is your members of your body and so on, uh, as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. You have a choice now. You can choose to change any sinful habit, any tendency that is not that is dishonoring to God and hindering your spiritual walk. God has given you a new life in Christ. Sometimes when I teach this uh, to some people, um, inevitably I get someone to say, 
I believe what you're saying is true. Will it ever get easier? Will it ever get easier? How, how, uh, it's such a struggle. Will it ever get easier? And I bring up to that verse 19. Because verse 19 tells me it does get easier. And, 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 and through experience, even in my own life, righteous living does get easier. I mean, it's never totally easy. Don't get me wrong. We're always, there's always going to be something else new God's going to show us, right? As we grow in Christ-likeness, we'll never be perfected in this life. But look what it's saying here. Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, right? Sin leading to more sin, leading to more sin, leading to more sin, right? You remember the first time you did something that was wrong? I remember the first time as a young boy, uh, my cousin and I, we were young boys, and there was this tree, and these older guys had a fort there. We went there to be some cigarette butts. You know, we were told not to smoke. Then you know how it is with the fascination of the forbidden, right? Well, we picked up, we got some uh, pack of matches, and even though, you know, my parents told us not to smoke, they smoked. So I got some matches. We went over there, and we started smoking, gagging like crazy, you know, acting like we're having a good time. And, um, but the first time, I was, we were scared to death. I thought someone's going to see us. We're scared. I, hiding, hiding in the brush, right? And after a while, we go back there after several weeks of that, hey, nothing, just like it was nothing. You know, that's how it is. Sin, you get more comfortable in sin. It gets easier to sin. That's the same, but if you go on, so now, just as, so now, present your members as slaves of righteousness, leading to sanctification, and the concept here, the implication, to more sanctification and more sanctification. That's the idea. In other words, that gets easier too. At first, it's kind of, kind of awkward, right? It's a little bit awkward uh, trying to uh, break, uh, thing, uh, trying to uh, uh, change certain habits uh, and uh, tendencies that are in our lives and ways of thinking. It takes a lot of concentration, a lot of prayer, you know, to um, make these changes in our life. And then eventually it can become easier. It just becomes part of you. You form a new habit in your life, but that new habit is, is more, it's, it's a righteous habit. So therefore, you can make that dramatic transformation from two. You can go from being an angry, characterized by angry, Anger to self-control. You can go from anxiety to trust in God. You can go from bitterness to forgiveness. From demeaning words to edifying words. From lust to purity. From impulsiveness to thoughtfulness. You're now free to pursue righteousness. That last bullet says, Sanctification is not merely the avoidance of sin, but to promotion of godliness. Victory over sinful habits and tendencies, they can be a daily experience. And sanctification and practice can now be attained. That's what we learn in Romans chapter 6. Amen? Amen. There's a resource here. Uh, in fact, you find it on the table there if you want to take a look at it. But this resource uh, here is a... Uh, uh, this to, the, the going to from, the put off, in other words, this put off, put on thing. It has over 100 put off and put on thing, uh, um, things to it that helps a person uh, learn what needs to be put off in their life, what sinful practices 
and what, what does God want us to replace them with. And it also has a little teaching of how to go about putting on these changes in our life. It builds upon Romans 6. Romans 6 is the, is the foundation. And then this little teaching and the rest of the book uh, helps a person know how to put that particular, uh, uh, cha- those changes in their life. So you could take a look at that on the table there if you uh, would like to. Or also, I just gave you in your book too. You can take a look online at it. But let's take a minute and pray. Father, we uh, thank you. I thank you for your word. Thank you for the great uh, teachings uh, from Heath and others as we uh, come to understand and be solidified in our thinking of the sufficiency of, of Scripture. And here in Romans 6, the sufficiency of Christ, the, the, the sufficiency of the living word and the written word. I pray that you would have it be uh, just uh, cons- consumed and just affirmed stronger and stronger in our hearts uh, that we would have a true hope uh, in you and that we would be able to grow being more competent as counselors and uh, also to grow uh, in, in, our, in our particular lives, Lord, in a way that would please and honor you, I pray, for your honor and glory. Amen. Amen. Thank-